0: Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Morning, church. How we doing? Woo! Even some woos out there. Look at you guys and clapping. Come on. Baptist, yeah, right. I know. Uh, my name is Peter. I'm the senior pastor here at FBH. We're glad that you're with us for joining us online. We're glad you're joining us there um, as well. Uh, we got some fun news to share with you. Um, many of you already know. We made a post about it on Facebook. We sent it out through our, uh, our email chain and all of that stuff. Um, but, uh, but God has been kind of taking us through some, some transition over the course of, uh, of the summer, really reaching back into the spring. As you heard, Danny, this is his last weekend here. And Kyle, our worship pastor, is getting ready to, to move on uh, in September at some point, at which point he'll be dead to us and we won't talk about him ever again. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but but that being said, that meant we had some work to do, and so we've already made one announcement that our uh, our Brian guy we've officially hired as our as our next gen pastor, and there's that's Brian and his wife Maddie and their son Theo. But even more exciting than that, and only more exciting because it's newer, um, we have uh, officially hired uh, Brian Asbury as our uh, our next worship pastor here as well. So yeah, to celebrate that. He's probably watching online, um, and uh, and so we're pumped on that. He'll start in late September with us, mid September somewhere in there. We're still trying to nail those uh, those dates down, and so uh, we love we just love Brian's is what it's that what it's about. Um, but uh, but anyway, we're uh, we're closing up our our first half of this series in the book of Mark. We're so gonna be in Mark nine today. You can flip your Bibles open there. You can click them open there if you uh, you have a device. You can get there. Um, but, uh, but before we, we get into Scripture, we'll get to it in just a second. I want you to think for a second about maybe the first time that you have felt like you were in over your head in some way. Maybe it was a new responsibility, a new job. Maybe it was when you became a parent for the first time. I know I had those feelings when I was a parent for the first time. Like, they were like, okay, you can leave with your kid now. Like, I can you come too? <laughs> right? Um, and, uh, and so I just want you to think maybe at a time where you were given responsibility and, and you felt like this was way over your head. Because for me, I mean, at least a, a comical time I can remember is when I was in high school, I had a bunch of different jobs, right? Like rotating uh, a carousel of jobs, essentially. And I was a lifeguard at one point. I worked retail at one point. Um, but the worst job that I ever had was being a copy boy at a title company. But to be fair, I was really, I was like the best copy boy to ever work at a title company, though. It's kind of a big deal. And so, what would happen my senior year from three o'clock to five o'clock, I would go to this title company in Merced and uh, would make copies. Now, I'm not trying to offend anybody in there if you like work in an escrow company or whatever, but this is arguably the most boring place to work in the history of jobs, okay? And so my dad thought he was doing me a favor by being like, hey, I have a buddy who owns a title company. You want a job, he needs a copy boy. You're good at hitting a green button. It's like, cool, I, you know, I had the, the prerequisites. And so at some point, they decided that I was so good at being a copy boy that they wanted to add hours for me. But the problem was I couldn't get there before 3 o'clock because I had school, right? So they were like, you know what? we are going to give you a raise from $7 to $7.50 an hour. And I thought, okay, <laughs> this is it, I've arrived. Um, and uh, and also we are going to add two hours onto the end of your workload. So you would be here till se- so I was gonna be there until seven o'clock, which meant that I had to lock up the entire building, right? So uh, it was weird. So like my first week I'm going through and I have to like pack my lunch and take it to school, but then also I have to pack my dinner and take it with me to work as well. So I've got like this hot sweaty PB&J smash sandwich in my backpack like ready to go and uh, and the first two days were great. Monday and Tuesday was awesome right it's like by myself turn on some loud country radio like make a fool of myself and no one's around to to see me make a fool of myself but then like Wednesday rolled around and I was like I'm tired of this smash PBJ for dinner I wonder if they have any popcorn in the break room. So I was like, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to go pop myself some popcorn. So I went in there. Here's something you need to know about the story. I think in my home growing up, my parents had the original microwave, like the first microwave ever created, and they never updated it from that point. So that microwave didn't have a popcorn button on it. All I knew was that I needed to put a bag of popcorn in, press three minutes and 45 seconds, and press start, and it would be the perfect bag of popcorn, right? Some of you are concerned already. I get it. So I do the same thing. I don't look for a fancy popcorn button. I just know that if I press 345, the popcorn's gonna come out. It's gonna be golden brown. There's not gonna be any burn on it and the fewest amount of kernels in the bottom of the bag. So I go in, I do that 345, press start and I go back to my hole where I'm making copies. And all of a sudden, there's a very distinct smell that starts permeating where I'm at and it's burnt popcorn. So I go in there and it's this little break room. It has a door that swings both ways. So I push the door open and the room is covered in smoke. I mean, full of smoke, and I don't know what to do at this point. All I wanted was popcorn. And this is what I got. So it was, felt like a sitcom. So I just turned around, contemplated my life's decisions, closed the doors, and was like, I have no clue what to do right now. And at about uh, that point, um, I thought, okay, well, my boss needs to know about this. I can handle this. I don't need to call him and bother him while he's at home. I'll just write a note and set it on his desk, let him know what happened, just in case there's some smell of popcorn or whatever. Right? About that time, right as I'm laying the note on a desk, sirens start going off in the office. Okay, and there's lights, and um, and so then I was like, okay, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And the phone rings, and it's the alarm company, they're like, is everything okay? I was like, I don't know, I just, I just want popcorn. <laughs> um, and uh so was like no everything's fine I just burned some popcorn they're like okay well the fire department's on their way I was like I am 17 years old I am not prepared for any of this and the the fire department knocks on the front door and they're like let me in I was like I don't know how to open that door you have to go to the back so they circle around back and I let them in and I was like what do I do They're like, well, you got to turn on the air conditioner so you can cycle the stuff. I was like, I don't know how to turn on the air conditioner. Like, I know nothing except, like, is there something I can do that involves the copy machine that will help this situation? Because I know how to use the copy machine. And they were just, you know, obviously, we got the air running at least a little bit. And as they are leaving, my boss pulls up. And when I say boss, I mean the owner of the title company, pulls up and he made it known to me very clearly that I had pulled him away from his steak dinner and wine that he was enjoying with his wife as he was wearing a maroon jumpsuit zipped down to about here with gold chains and hair coming out the front of it right and I was like I thought he was going to make me kiss this ring at one point you know what I'm saying and so um so anyway All that to be said he was very forgiving more concerned about me than anything and the worst part of this story so like i like he at this point is like hey just go home i was like i have more copies he's like no just just go home um and so the worst part was the next day didn't get fired thought i was going to get fired first person to ever get fired for a popcorn related incident i'm sure um and uh so i get to work the next day it's three o'clock And it's just straight the walk of shame by like 60, 70 employees. And they're all just staring at me, little comments here and there. I was just like, you know what? Whatever. Yeah, I am that guy. And it reeked of popcorn for like weeks in that office. It was not, it was not good. But it was the first time that I was put in this position of responsibility. Right? The first time that, that someone had given something to me and said, okay, you are in charge of this. Not only are you in charge of it, I'm gonna give you a little bit more money so you know that this is indeed a bigger responsibility. And so I'm sure all of us have had those opportunities in our life where we think to ourselves, okay, this is a big responsibility. I feel like I'm in over my head in some way, shape, or form. Like I said, maybe a job, maybe a, being a parent for the first time, whatever it may be. You think, I am not prepared for this. I think oftentimes, even spiritually, that's kind of a point that we get to as well, whether it's serving in ministry or sharing your faith with other people or doing things for the kingdom of God, even living in such a way that would exemplify the fact that you are a follower of Jesus, whatever it may be. I think a lot of times we feel unprepared to do those things, and so we end up shying away. So I don't know what it is for you. Maybe think for a second, why is it that you shy away from exemplifying Jesus in your life, from serving Jesus, from even talking about Jesus in your life. Because as we've been going through this uh, this gospel of Mark, today we're actually going to come to a passage in which the disciples were in far over their heads. Jesus had given them plenty of opportunity, plenty of responsibility rather, but they realize that they are in far over their heads. And this really is a key episode in the training of all of these disciples. And it's also a key story and something all of us that we need to understand as followers of Jesus. So it starts in verse 14. It says, When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? he asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive, the spirit, to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Okay, so right before this story, we kind of picked up mid-story, but right before this story, Jesus had gone up on a mountainside. And Jesus called to him those that he wanted, kind of this inner core of people, inner core of his disciples. Not all of the disciples got to go, only the varsity guys got to go, which left the JV team kind of down managing and being with people. So the disciples at this point are probably being recognized. People probably know, okay, yeah, those are the guys who hang out with Jesus. These guys have also given, been given the opportunity to teach. These guys have given the opportunity to heal, to drive out demons. They have done these things in the past. All of them have. And so there's this whole group of guys there and a whole crowd of people come to find them. And so these disciples have been left alone to deal with a demon while Jesus is up away on a mountain. And no sooner does he come down from that mountain than he was faced with what the disciples had been up to while he was gone. It was complete and total chaos. You think it was bad to leave me in charge of popping popcorn? Like this was going to be terrible. Jesus had left these guys to minister in his absence. He had prepared them at this point. They knew what they were supposed to do at this point, but they weren't ready yet. They were in way over their heads. And so as we look at this passage, we're in a very similar situation ourselves. As we Read this passage, the passage teaches us a, a couple lessons, and, and, and the first lesson we need to recognize is that we are continually faced with situations in ministry and in life that are greater than we can handle, right? In, in verses 14 through 18, the, the disciples, they're acting like representatives of Jesus at this point. They, entrusted, they were entrusted by him to, to do his ministry the same, by the way, as you and I are entrusted to do the ministry of jesus i think oftentimes we look at like the disciples and they're doing the things they've been called to do and all of that stuff we're like man those guys are rock stars they really weren't man if you look at their stories these guys man i mean jesus calls them dull at one point like hey you are dumb at one point and we look up to these guys like man there's no way I could ever fathom doing things like this we are called to be representatives of Christ we're called to do ministry for the sake of Christ we are God church the church is God's plan a for the world I've said that numerous times and there is no plan b we are called to represent Jesus in his absence and that's exactly the situation the disciples find find themselves in but the disciples at some point, man, they soon discover the limitations of their ability to act as, as representatives of Jesus. They're faced with a boy possessed with a spirit. And we read in 21 and 22 that this spirit actually, man, it has thrown him into the fire. It's thrown him in the water. He's had it since birth. And if you're looking at it through like a modern lens, modern context, you probably read this and think, that sounds a lot like epilepsy, right? That seems, sounds a lot like somebody just merely having a seizure, Okay, so this goes back to what our belief in the Bible is, though. So our stance on the belief of the Bible is that the Bible is truthful in everything that it affirms. So if the Bible says that this is an unclean spirit, or this is an evil spirit, or this is a demon, or whatever the translation is, then we need to recognize that that is indeed true. And the Bible also is very clear when they are dealing with some sort of illness versus some sort of demonic presence. Okay, so here it is very clear that this says that this is an evil spirit. This boy had been dealing with it his entire life. And and I get like we may struggle with understanding the spiritual dimensions of something like we read in this passage, but scripture is indeed clear that evil does exist and Satan is intent on destroying and killing life. And so if it says this is an evil spirit, based on my belief in the Bible, I also believe that this is indeed an evil spirit. But what's happening here? If the disciple here are facing a a spiritual battle human need right there's an an extraordinarily difficult time like like they are trying to do something that is beyond their own resources in the same way that in life we often come to places in our life where we just cannot do it on our own and whoever said that God can never give you more than you can handle had never read their Bible by the way That is not true. It says that nowhere in the Bible. As a matter of fact, it goes on record numerous times where people are like, God, I cannot do this. And then God takes care of it. Paul talks about numerous times In all of his epistles, and all of his letters, Paul regularly talks about like, hey, it is not me who is doing this. This is Jesus through me. I don't want to boast in my power. It's Jesus who is actually doing that. It's the Spirit of God who's been given to me who is actually doing that. And so when the disciples are coming up against it, we recognize that they are utilizing their own ability rather than Christ's. So I got to thinking this week about some of the challenges that kind of I've encountered over the the past couple weeks and months, even our our church as we walk through having to replace a lot of our staff. And even in the midst of all of that, we have been commissioned to act as Jesus' representatives. He has given us authority to do so. And it seems like, though, everywhere we turn, whether it's in life or in work or whatever, faith, and we just seem like we're in over our heads, but these disciples, they encountered a boy being tormented by a spirit. That seems like a big deal, but we, we encounter all issues, too, that are far beyond what we can handle. Right? People who seem to be in, in spiritual bondage, people suffering with mental illnesses, marriages that are in trouble. We look around and see kids living in impossible situations, people caught in addiction or living in violent or even abusive situations and relationships. Because they're all difficult things and we need to be able to pause for a second as Christians and recognize and see the enormity of what has been set before us. Because I'm being honest, I think a lot of times we think to ourselves, oh man, free ticket into heaven. Cool, I'm in. I mean, Romans 10, 9 and 10 tells me that in order for me to get to heaven, I just have to believe in my heart and confess with my lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. Man, I'm good, I do that. I believe my heart, I've confessed with my lips, cool, let's go. But then I think oftentimes we forget that there is a task in front of us that we have been called to, to make God look good and Christ well known, that Jesus' name should be on our lips consistently, that the way that we live should exemplify who Jesus is in a very, very real way. And that's a big task, and we need to see the enormity of it. Because once in a while we need to pause and say, like, what Jesus has called us to is humanly impossible. It is humanly impossible for us to be able to take on what it is that the church is supposed to take on. I cannot preach a sermon that will be able to change your life. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Jeff cannot give announcements that will change your life. He'll try And he's very good at them oftentimes, but he can't do it. And also, I mean, I know the Holy Spirit can work in whatever way possible, but I don't know if it's ever been through announcements. Our worship team cannot lead in such a way that brings you into the presence of God on their own ability, right? All of these things are outside of our own personal ability. Like what Jesus has called us to do is not humanly possible. And Jesus calls, calls disciples to tap our abilities, beyond their abilities even. So beyond that, we also need to see this passage teaches us that we have a, man, we've got a tendency to be self-reliant. Now you think that at this point in our lives, at this point in our trajectory with faith, that we would depend on God to get everything done. That everything that it is, we would depend on God. But we have this tendency to rely on our own a lot. I think, honestly, it's because we grew up with this idea of the American dream. If you just work a little harder, put in a little bit more time, you know, do all this, manage a little bit better, go to school a little bit longer, get that degree, make sure that you're able to support your family and your two and five eighths kids or whatever that number is now. Make sure you do all of those things, and we are results-oriented as a culture. I think by nature, right? Healthy things grow is usually the way that that conversations go. It's healthy; it's going to be able to to grow. But we don't depend on God oftentimes to get things done. We spend a lot of times pres- persuading others that we are competent, that, and we have a really hard time admitting that we are dependent on God rather than our own strength and our own techniques. Like, like, picture this scene as Jesus comes down, right? The disciples are surrounded by this big crowd. They have failed publicly, not like just failed in front of the firefighters and their boss, like failed Publicly, and there's nothing like being surrounded by a crowd while you fall flat on your face. The scribes they're arguing with the disciples, what it says. The father seems like he's frustrated, the boy is no better. This whole scene is complete and total chaos. And then Jesus says in Mark 9:19, You unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long should I put up with you? Right? We get the impression here that Jesus is frustrated. But it isn't just like direct it at the JV team disciples. Right? That's not just who it's directed to. It's actually much bigger. He talks about an unbelieving generation. He's really got a problem with, with the disciples, and that problem also is characterized by everybody in that generation. This isn't just a problem that's restricted to a select few people. This is a problem that really does affect everybody. So the question is: what's the problem? Was the demon too powerful? There's no doubt the demon was actually powerful. It says so. The disciples had been able to cast out other demons, though, so I don't know why we would think that maybe the demon is more powerful. But the problem, according to Jesus, wasn't really the demon. Jesus doesn't even get frustrated with the demon. Jesus recognizes he can take care of this whole thing. The problem, Jesus says, is not that the demon is too big. It's the faith of the disciples is too small. That's the issue. The disciples had been called to do something, and their faith was too small. They were trying to handle things on their own. This passage actually shows us the right way and the wrong way to handle the fact that we are spiritually dependent individuals that we are all spiritually dependent, that we are all in way over our heads in the spiritual realm, that we cannot do it on our own. So here's, here's the wrong way. The wrong way to deal with the idea that we're spiritual dependent is in verses 28 and 29, where it says, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, that kind can come out only by prayer. We think, okay, why is that wrong? They went and they talked to Jesus. Because Jesus just rebuked them, That means that they tried everything else except prayer. Like I'm sure they thought about like, oh, when Jesus, there was that like demoniac and I am legion and all that stuff and he sent him out on the pigs. Remember what Jesus did there? He like just like kind of talked to the guy, commanded the spirit to get out. I would have loved to see some of these disciples sitting there like, go into those pigs. They didn't, clearly. Like They tried everything else, and Jesus was like, yep, that kind of demon can only get out by prayer, meaning they did not pray. And this is, like it, it should be shocking to us. And on this side of things, I'm sure all of us think to ourselves, you know what, if I was there, I would have just like taken a step back from the chaos. I would have hit my knees, I would have prayed a little prayer, and that spirit would have been gone. All right, We love to think the best of ourselves romanticize those situations, but I would have been front and center with those disciples trying to get that demon into a pig somewhere. I mean, that's the reality of the situation. Why? Because I love to be able to hand things on my own, handle things on my own accord, in my own ability, rather than stopping and thinking to myself, I am trying to be reliant on myself rather than relying on God. And I think in those situations, like that question, that it begs the question is, could it be that this is one of the reasons for, for our lack of lack of power in the community, this power that the Bible talks about, the Holy Spirit that should live inside of us, that we are relying too hard on our own ability rather than relying on God. There's a theologian by the name of Oz Guinness. He said this is exactly what's happening today. He says this, The two most easily, re- uh, the two most easily recognizable hallmarks of secularization are the exaltation of numbers and technique. Both are prominent in the church growth movement. In its fascination with statistics and data at the expense of truth, this movement is characteristically modern. In a world of number crunchers, bean counters, and computer analysts, the growth of churches as a measurable, fact-based business enterprise is utterly natural. That means we try to do ministry in our own power, and we think to ourselves, well, I just want to make a better decision. I want to follow up better with those people, and we do that here, right? Right? Like, like your kids today, if they are new with us, like, they're going to get a handwritten note from some of our volunteers talking about things they did, a conversation they had. Why? Because we want them to feel loved. But that also means that we have your address on file now. You're never getting rid of us. <laughs> Just kidding. You can opt out at any time, I promise. <laughs> right? But we do those things. We want to follow up. We want to be better. Like, we want to make sure we are caring for people. We want to make sure that at the end of the month, we are being good stewards with our money. So we need to make sure that we're financially secure, meaning we, we count our money, right? We want to see if, if the, the different messages that we are preaching and the different themes that we are covering resonate well with people. So because of that, do we have people showing up to church or, man, are people fleeing, so, of course, we keep track of those things. The problem becomes when you only keep track of those things and not, start, and not continue to rely on the truth of Scripture, when you start saying, you know what, I don't know if we should talk about that, because if we do, people might not give, or because if we do, people might not come back, and you start forsaking what the Bible says in favor of bean counting In favor of doing things on your own accord rather than just simply trusting in Jesus and in his power and not our own. So that's the wrong way, is to go about things and try to do it yourself. The right way, there's a positive example in this passage. It's one of my favorite characters. His name is Father. As the Father in this passage, he realizes he's in way over his head at this point. Is he self confident? Nope, not at all. Actually, in verse 22, He even says, if you can do anything, he says, take pity on us and help us. Does that sound like a guy who has it all together? Just please take pity on me. That seems like a guy who's screaming for for help in some way and doesn't care that everybody else knows that he can't do it on his own accord. Even beyond that, he's not convinced Jesus can do it. He says, if you can do anything to help. He didn't say, hey, heal me because I know who you are, or heal my son rather is if you can do anything to help. And the problem is that, man, we think Jesus only deals with people who have it all together, right? And I think oftentimes that's a, a, a theme. Like if I just have, once I get my life together, then I'll come back to church. Or once I have my life together, then I'll join a small group. Or once things slow down a little bit, then I'll do X, Y, and Z. Right? It's actually the opposite is true. Jesus gives grace to, to those who acknowledge their need. And so Jesus challenges the father at that point. And in verse 24, the father says the the most incredible line in this entire passage, where he says, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And I know that sounds like it's at odds with each other raise your hand if you played soccer when you were younger just raise your hand let's get some audience participation i just want you guys to move a little bit cool so some of you played soccer when you were younger and i bet your parents thought you were the best soccer player in the world too by the way um, my kids play soccer and uh and so whenever they play soccer they are soccer players right by, by every form of the definition they're in a league they have a coach there's a ball on the field, and especially when they're younger, they do something that slightly resembles soccer and slightly resembles just like picking grass, right? Like, some, like something happens that resembles soccer. And so in every way, shape, and form, they are soccer players. That being said, if you put my son's soccer team when he was on an under six team versus a varsity high school soccer players, there would obviously be a pretty big difference in ability level. Like, the varsity team is going to wipe the floor with those kids, but they're both soccer players, right? They both, they both are doing the same thing, so why is it that one, we would consider greater soccer players than the other? It's the same thing that this father is saying here. He's saying, look, I believe, but I'm an under-six soccer player belief. Get me to varsity level. I believe, but help my unbelief. Help me progress in such a way that I can be on the varsity team at some point. And this whole time, Mark is pulling passages like he, like he is completely and totally trying to line up this and the story of Moses back in the book of Exodus. Yeah, so if, if for those of you who are with us, we went through the book of Exodus, I think it was last year. And, and Moses goes up on a mountain to meet with God. And then when Moses comes back down off of that mountain, there's an entire generation of people there who decided that they are going to be able to handle everything, that they are going to, you know what, we're going to put together a bunch of stuff from our old jewelry, we're going to make it into a calf, and we're going to worship that thing that was created with our own hands. You can draw a parallel to that here with this story that Jesus and his core disciples come off of that mountain and he comes back to all of these men, these disciples who have decided that they are going to do things their way. They are going to do things apart from God. They're going to say, you know what? I I, I can do this on my own accord. I don't need to pray. I can do this. I've seen how to do this before. I can do it. And they turn their ability and their skill level into an idol on its own but that's not what the father is doing here the father's saying like i can't do it on my own i need your help jesus i've tried everything i need your help this passage shows us that we have this tendency as believers that is indeed very dangerous this tendency towards doing things on our own and and forgetting about the Holy Spirit that has sealed inside of us for eternity if we have said yes to him. They're like, nah, I got it. I can do that. I'm talented enough. I'm able enough. And we'll be able to do stuff. Like, you'll still be able to do stuff, but it's going to lack the power that the Bible promises. And the danger is that we will be self reliant. Another theologian and pastor, his name is Henry Now, and he wrote We have fallen into the temptation of separating ministry from spirituality, service from prayer. Our demons say that we are too busy to pray. We have too many needs to attend to, too many people to respond to, too many wounds to heal. Prayer is a luxury, something to do during a free hour, a day away from work or on a retreat. I actually wonder if we fear prayer because now one says prayer is a way of being empty and useless in the presence of God. And so, of proclaiming our basic belief that all is grace and nothing is simply the result of hard work. In other words, we would choose not to pray because that means I'm not in control. And that that hits home for me deeply that I want to be in control of things, I want to make sure that I am able to accomplish the things that I have set out to accomplish. And I know I'm not by myself in this room, but we are continually faced with situations in ministry, situations in life that are greater than we can handle. And we need to see that this passage teaches us that we have a tendency to be self-reliant instead of reliant on God. So what is the solution? We see in this passage that God actually calls us to, to repent and depend on him. Like this isn't just like some random story. This story is a part of the gospel of Mark that describes like this preparation process. Last week, we talked about the, the, that middle of the book of Mark, literally last week, that from that point forward, this was a march towards Jesus's death. So at this point, Jesus is making sure his disciples are completely and totally prepared for future ministry. And they had to, relearn, they had to learn this reliance or else they could never carry out the mission that Jesus was going to entrust to them. And it seems like they learn, too, because later on in the book of Acts, you see the disciples continually engaging in prayer over and over and over again. It talks about that they are committed to prayer. Somebody said one time that that the early church was characterized by uneducated men agonizing and the modern church is characterized by educated men organizing, which that stings a little bit. Like, my office is clean. I know where to find all my books. Just because I'm organized, that means God can't use me. Come on. So what's the solution? I think two things. I think we need to learn a lot from the Father in this passage. And to admit that to God that, that we believe, but we really don't believe. And that's a hard spot. Like we don't even know how dependent we are on God. We accept that Jesus Jesus came to serve, to give his life, to rise again so that, so that we could have power and new life, but we still try to live on our own strength on a consistent basis. And maybe this morning, we just need to repent and even admit that we don't know how dependent we are, and then ask God to help us. Say, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And Jesus said, this kind can only come out by prayer. I think it's the second takeaway for this morning. You know, I make jokes about baptists and all of the you know baggage that comes with it and the stereotypes and all of that stuff baptists historically are not good prayers baptists historically are good eaters we are great at potlucks we are great at order we are great at not clapping or raising our hands congratulations to all of you but I think one of the things that Baptists are not known for are being good prayers. And this is very, very clear. Jesus in this story is very, very clear that there is ministry we can only do through prayer and petition. And we're continually faced with situations in ministry and in life that are, that are greater than we can handle. And that's okay that's the intention. If you felt prepared for everything that you came into, my guess is you're just really arrogant of a person. And we need to recognize that we have to depend on him, but we have a tendency to be self-reliant. And God calls us to repent and depend on him. Anything else is idolatry. And that's a, hard, that's a hard word, so I don't know what it is and, and why you don't share your faith regularly or why you don't exemplify Jesus more regularly with your life or why whatever it is, whatever it is that you're struggling with, that you are refusing to allow Jesus into that situation. I don't know where that is, but my guess is that while you believe, you still need help with your unbelief. So how do we do that? We practice. Just like everything else, we practice and we get better as we do those different things. Can I just tell you, when I first got here four years ago, every time my phone rang and someone wanted to set up an appointment with me, I was absolutely terrified. I'd never been a senior pastor before. All I knew is that I was coming into a church and people had opinions about the way things the church should run. And so I put like all the bad stuff on every single phone call where someone called me. I'm just like, oh, man, they hate me. I said something wrong. They, they, they hate me. This is going to be bad. Like, I, this is, I did something. I made a decision where it was the equivalent of, like, punching their dog, and they hate me. And then what do you do? You have to have the conversations. And so you sit in the conversations. And nine times out of ten, it was like counseling or encouragement. And the one time, I was like, all right, I understand why you think that. This is why we did it. Are we good? Yep, we're good. All right, cool. See you next week when you have another issue. And that's just the way it goes, and you get better at it because you practice it, and you practice being in those difficult situations. It's the same thing for any of you who have jobs that require difficult conversations sometimes, right? You people who work in customer service, God bless you, and you have the conversations, and they're difficult at first, and then you get used to it, you practice it in the same way that with our faith, when it comes to sharing, sharing about God, or, or, or just simply being in our Bible on a regular basis, or when it comes with, like, living your life in accordance with the Word of God, like, whatever it may be, what do you do? You practice, and you do it over and over and over again. And I think the, the interesting thing is, is that, that I think the church, if we were to actually implement this, of prayer on the front end of things, rather than just simply being used as a way to start dinner or a way to transition people on and off the stage or whatever, if we actually prayed, I think that the church would be a much more humble group of people. I think the church would be soaked more in the identity of, I don't know, I need to pray about it rather than listen to my idea, I'm more comfortable with it. Or listen to what I have to say because I know best, man, I'm tired of churches that function like country clubs, right? I want to be a church where it is evident the spirit of God has been consulted and we take our leads from him and no one else. And so I'll end with this. Let's go back to the Bryans, that we're hiring, we've hired, and start soon. I know one of the things that has been said is, man, that was, that was really quick, we got them on board really quickly. And some people meant it as good and some people were you know, nervous about it, that's fine either way. But one of the things that you don't know is that Kyle actually told me that he was going to be done back in March, and we started Kyle's replacement search immediately hey man you should have seen me internet ninja social media sleuth right like if somebody had led worship somewhere i was going to find them i was going to find their mom i was going to find their dog who died five years ago like i knew whoops i knew everything about them before i consulted them because i was like i'm not just not just anybody can get on stage like that's not okay Right, like I want, I want like a better version of Phil Wickham. You know, like that's where I was at with everything. And so we found a guy, and we were pumped on the guy, and we had done the prayers, right, like the the, like the pre-interview prayers, and Jeff and I had prayed about, it and I prayed about it privately. But still, all the while, even in my belief, I was unbelieving because I was terrified that in September, when Kyle was going to be done, that we were going to have to have Jeff up here with a thing that we got him called a shoebarine that goes on his shoe, and he would be tapping his foot and singing a hymn like that was going to be our worship. New low. We were te- I-, I was terrified about that, so I was doing everything I could in my own will to be able to try to find this person. Like I said, we got really, really far, and that person dropped out. He was like, no, I'm good. And I think God truly protected us from something, but in the midst of that, I think I learned a very real lesson because I got even more scared at that point. Like, we had it lined up. We thought, oh, perfect. End of July, we'll have this guy in. We'll be good to go. Kyle can ride off into the sunset. He's dead to us. We'll never talk to him again. Um, but when that guy took off me and god had some very real conversations at that point not just the mandated prayers that i'm supposed to have because i'm a pastor before i'm going through things but like god i'm on my knees with my lights off in my office please like whoever it is that you are supposed to bring like you have to make this happen because i've tried and it went horribly and yeah sure i consulted you I believed, I did the things I was supposed to do, but God, help me in my unbelief because I'm terrified right now that you're not gonna have somebody in place when they're supposed to be in place, according to my plans. And so about three days after that conversation that I had with God, um, I got a little notification in my email inbox that said, Brian Asbury has put his resume on churchstaffing.com. So I clicked it, looked at his resume, made sure he was educated somewhere. It's like, all right, cool. We're just going to ask that guy. I'm going to shoot that email. Hey, you want to you wanna come and apply for this job? I think you could be a fit. I didn't do any internet sleuthing. I did no social media ninja-ing. I did none of those things. And as, as I was on my way home that day, I thought to myself, I don't even know if this guy can sing. I, I didn't even look at his profile. All I know is this came up and I felt like I was supposed to write that dude an email. So I wrote the dude an email, and look, look what God did. And I was surprised by it. Why are we surprised by those things? When we let God in, we're just like, God, help me. Like, I believe, God, but help me in my unbelief because I don't know if this is actually going to happen and I don't want Jeff Schubert on stage. Like, please, God, tell me how it is that this is going to... I believe, but help me in my unbelief. And I think if we approach that more as, as followers of Jesus, man, I, th- I think the power held like, within, the, like, within our own lives to be able to enter into hard conversations... And be okay with saying, I don't know the answer to it. I don't know why God is doing it. But man, I, like, I believe that he has something better for me. I believe he has something better for you. Like, I believe, but God, help me in my unbelief. And I think it's okay if we land there. I think it's okay if we consistently petition God, say, just God, help me in my unbelief. And as I don't If my faith isn't big enough yet, I'm going to do my best to go out and just practice being in those hard conversations, to even practice prayer, to practice sitting down and getting quiet and reading my Bible, to practice all of those disciplines that we are supposed to do day in and day out that we just don't do because they're too hard. Like, God, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. I think we need to land there more often as a church. I think if we did that, there would be something very, very real and tangible that those who do not yet believe would be able to see and even touch and feel. God, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for this story. Thank you for, for Jesus and him being transfigured up on the mountain and his glory shown and God, thank you for these other disciples who were dealing with something that was way above their pay grade, that they thought that they could handle, that was way above their head. God, thank you for those examples as well as the example of the Father who simply said, I believe but help me in my unbelief. I don't think I could put into words how I actually feel <laughs> with my faith sometimes, without those words, gotta believe, but help me in my unbelief. So God, help us there. And maybe you're new here, maybe you, with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if maybe you haven't just said yes to Jesus, you made a profession of faith, a marked line in the sand, where you think to yourself, yeah, I do believe, but I've been waiting to be able to believe more Are you just feeling the Holy Spirit burning inside of you, and you think to yourself, "Man, this is—I need to say yes to Jesus." If that's you today, you can simply make that profession of faith by praying along with me and say, "Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior; that I fall short daily. But B, I believe that you sent your Son to die on a cross for me, and He took care of all of that sin." so I could be with you in eternity forever and see that I would choose to follow you every single day. God, help me in my unbelief. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.